This week, a man from my hometown, Brian McDade, who'd been teaching at an international school in Sudan, said he was thankful to be alive after making it out of the country on a military aeroplane. He and his family had been sheltering in their basement since they'd begun to hear gunfire in the capital city, and they realised that they had to get out. No doubt that sense had been building and building up to the point when they made the decision to leave. Perhaps when things started to kick off, they thought, we'll be fine, it'll be okay. Maybe they heard of others leaving the country, as maybe we did when when things just started to, to heat up a bit with COVID. We heard of people getting on flights to try and get home and we thought, well, that's a bit extreme. Uh, But eventually it became clear that they had to leave. Uh, And just like those in Sudan over the past uh, couple of weeks have had a building awareness that something has needed done. So as we listen to Jesus' Beatitudes, uh, we should have a similar building awareness that something has to be done. The first three Beatitudes are all focused on realising how we stand before God. To be poor in spirit, uh, the first Beatitude is to realise that we have nothing to bring to the table, spiritually speaking. Uh, It's to realise that there's nothing we can point to in order that God would let us into heaven. It's to realise that if we stand before God and he asks us why he should let us into heaven and we think we can point to anything that we have ever done or or not done, then then we have no hope. Uh, The the second beatitude is about the the mourning that follows on from the realisation that we have nothing to bring to God. It's not just an intellectual acknowledgement that we have nothing in God's sight. Uh, but, but it's getting a glimpse of how repugnant uh, it is in God's sight, how repugnant our sin is, and mourning over it. And then the third beatitude, which we looked at last time, is meekness. It's about accepting God's estimate of our own lives in place of our own estimate. It's about stopping pretending to be better than we are. Not just before God, but also before other people. The Beatitudes that we've looked at so far then have been about realising what we're like in God's sight. Uh, They've been about letting that news deeply affect us. Mourning over our sin. uh, Stopping pretending uh, in the sight of God that we're better than we really are. To go back to the picture of someone fleeing from Sudan, it's realising that we have no hope if we stay. It's letting the seriousness of the situation hit home. It's letting that realisation impact how we interact with others. But up to this point, we haven't yet fled to the airport. We haven't yet got on the plane. Realising how we stand before God is vital. But simply realising that isn't enough. We have to act on it. We we have to do something. And all the Beatitudes so far lead up to this one. And the rest of the Beatitudes flow from it. 
And here at the very centre of the Beatitudes, we have the words, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we're going to look at this vital, central Beatitude under three headings this morning. We're going to see our need of righteousness. We're going to see Jesus' provision of righteousness. And then our pursuit of righteousness. And first of all, we see our need of righteousness. Nobody wants to be called self-righteous. That's a phrase used to describe those who think of themselves as better than other people. It's a term often used of religious people, sometimes and sadly very appropriately. People who think that their church going or good deeds make them better than others. But many, many people around us also do things, even if they're not religious, they do things that they will point to if called on to try and prove that they are good people. Not sure if you saw in the news this week that an animal rights charity had put up an advert in a seaside town in England which suggested that eating fish was the same as eating pets. It's a digital advertising board with a fishmonger holding up a dead fish which then changes into a dead cat and the message at the bottom is respect all life, go vegan. In other words, if you eat fish, you don't respect all life. Also in the past week I saw someone on Facebook asking people to keep their windows shut around tea time if they were cooking meat because this person usually went for a run around tea time and found the smell of cooking meat offensive. Rosaria Butterfield who's now an RP minister's wife in America, uh, she there's an interview you can watch on YouTube. She, she talks about her days as part of the lesbian community and the political activism that they were involved in and the good that they thought they were doing even though it didn't help them sleep at night. People around us are doing things that they are convinced are good things, things that they will point to as evidence of their righteousness it's as if we, we, we feel deep down that we are not righteous and so we have to find something that we can do, uh, that we can hold up and say, look, look at what I've done, look at what I do, look at how I live my life. I am righteous. I am more righteous than those around me. Those around us are, in the words of the Apostle Paul, ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own does not describe what so many people around us are doing, whether religious or otherwise. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God and they are seeking to establish their own. The Bible's verdict is clear. None of us, religious or otherwise, have anything that we can bring to the table that will win God's approval. That's the message of the book of Romans, uh, probably the greatest exposition of the gospel that there has ever been. The book of Romans can be summarised, it's all to do with righteousness, our lack of it and God's provision of it. Uh, the opening chapters are about mankind's lack of righteousness. 
But then it goes on to speak about God's provision of righteousness. Then Israel as a nation, their refusal of righteousness. And finally, the application of God's righteousness. Uh, We looked at the opening chapters of, of Romans during our mission services a few years ago. The themes for each of the three evenings were bad people need Jesus, good people need Jesus and religious people need Jesus. And those are Paul's three themes in uh, in those opening couple of chapters. And Paul begins his demonstration of that by saying that the wrath of God in the middle of chapter 1 is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So right there Paul is saying that the person who refuses to believe in God is unrighteous. No matter how much virtue signalling they do no matter how many apparently good things, no matter if they never burn another fossil fuel, if they refuse to believe in God, they are unrighteous. That doesn't mean that people are righteous simply because they do believe in God, but it does mean that it is impossible to be good without God. In 2010, the Humanist Society of Scotland launched a campaign to coincide with the Pope's visit. They unveiled a a billboard with the slogan, Two million Scots are good without God. Apparently that was the official figure at the time for the number of people in Scotland who described themselves as having no religion. But the Bible's answer is, you can't be. You, you can't be good without God. So for Paul, that's, that's true of both the outwardly bad person and the outwardly good person. He starts with the outwardly bad person, uh, as we would call them, uh, and demonstrates there in, in Romans 1 that they are, are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And they demonstrate it by being full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, the law of God is is written on the heart of every human being. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So, so the bad unbeliever is unrighteousness. But so is the, the good unbeliever. Uh, and by good I mean as in how the world sees them and how they see themselves. As Paul points out, those who condemn the bad people in society often commit the very same sins that they commit just in more subtle ways like the person who condemns those who sleep around and yet watches pornography or the person who thinks that they are so much better than that person who uses their benefits to feed their habit and leaves their children starving when they leave their own children desperately hungry for their time and affection For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, says Paul. Why? 
because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's the old, look how many fingers are pointing back at you when you point the finger at others. So the good, respectable, non-religious person, they condemn the the bad, non-religious person, but they themselves are condemned by their condemnation. But what about the religious person, the religious person who doesn't love Jesus? Paul condemns also in Romans those who rely on the law. Uh, Those who were like him, uh, brought up with a very strict religious background and relying on it to make them right with God. But Paul condemns those who would say you must not commit adultery when they commit adultery themselves. Not necessarily outwardly. One of Jesus' purposes in the Sermon on the Mount is to show the true intent of the law and the true extent of the law, the true intent, the true intention of the law and the true extent of the law, how far the law reaches And so Jesus will say later on in Matthew 5, the same chapter, down in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. By saying that, Jesus wasn't modifying God's law. He wasn't improving on it. He was bringing it back to its original intention. Like someone restoring an old painting. He was scraping off all the dirt and grime which had gathered over the intervening years. And showing people what it was meant to look like. What it had been intended to look like from the beginning. And so Paul demonstrates in those opening chapters of Romans that that all bad people, good people, religious people all need Jesus As he puts it in Romans 3 verse 9, all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. The two categories of people in the world at the time, Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. That's bad news for us. Now if there wasn't any good news coming, there wouldn't have been any point in Paul writing his letter. There wouldn't have been any point in God giving us the Bible. But we need to see the bad news first. There is a plane that we can get on. That's the good news. A rescue flight has been chartered. But, just, but, but only when we see how bleak the situation is. Until we see that we will die without getting on that plane. We won't get on it. Until we see our complete and utter lack of righteousness, we won't run to Jesus. Until you see your lack of righteousness, there will be no hope for you. So have you seen that? Have you realised your spiritual poverty? Do you realise that there is no good work that you could ever do that would save you from God's judgment? Well, if by God's grace you have seen that, if you're ready to get on the plane, if you're asking, how how do I get on it? How do I get to the airport? Well, I have good news this morning. Uh, Secondly, we come to see Jesus' provision of righteousness. 
Firstly, our lack of righteousness, but secondly, Jesus' provision of righteousness. The bad news is that there is none righteous, no, not one. And that no one is going to get righteous by keeping the law because we can't do it. But here's the good news. As the Apostle Paul goes on to say in Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. The good news of the gospel, the amazing news of the gospel is that through faith in him, Jesus' righteousness, his righteousness is counted as ours. His perfect life of obeying God and loving God and serving God, it is counted as ours. The good news, it's not simply that our sins are forgiven, but how we need our sins forgiven. It's amazing that we would have our sins forgiven But if we only had our sins forgiven, it would bring us back to square one. Bring us back still having to to obey God perfectly. And so as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he that is God made him that is Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. One old writer uses the illustration of two giants. uh, And all humanity is hanging from the belts of one of these two giants. One is Adam. The other is Jesus Christ. Uh, By nature, by birth, we're all hanging on to Adam's belt. But to become a Christian is to be unhooked by God from Adam's belt. And hooked on to Jesus' belt. Uh, In him we become the righteousness of God. Have you ever climbed a mountain with a toddler? Well, how does that toddler climb the mountain? Well, they do it in a baby carrier. They're not able to do it themselves, but they are strapped on. And in that way, they climb the mountain. And so for us to attain to the righteousness of God, we can't do it ourselves. But we're strapped on to Jesus Christ through faith in him. We have a desperate lack of righteousness. We can't make up for it. And we need what theologians used to call an alien righteousness. Uh, maybe it makes us think of, of little green men and so on. But, but it's alien just in the sense it's a righteousness. It doesn't come from within us, it, it, but it comes from outside of us. In other words, we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And imputed just means counted It's not a righteousness that we have worked up, but Jesus' righteousness is counted as ours. I don't know if you have a a fitness tracker, uh, but maybe someday you thought, I'm never going to hit my 10,000 steps. But you you give your fitness tracker to someone else and say, you strap it on and you'll make the 10,000 steps. And then at the end of the day, I'll get it back and I'll get the award and it'll be counted as mine. Well, that's what it is for something to be imputed. Something that, that's not ours, that we don't earn, that someone else earns for us, but we get the reward of it. 
The Apostle Paul, he once thought that he was righteous by keeping the law. But God showed him that he wasn't. And from that moment on, to to know Christ and be covered by his righteousness became Paul's greatest desire. That's what he hungered and thirsted for. He says that he counted everything as rubbish in order that he might be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Think of the story of the emperor's new clothes. Maybe the, the boys and girls know that story. The, the emperor who was, who was tricked into uh, what he thought were these new, very fancy clothes, that they were so fancy that, that only really clever people could see them. But of course he has no clothes on the whole time. And what does he want more than anything when he realises that he's been taken in, when he realises that he has no clothes on? Well, he wants to be clothed. He, he desperately wants to be clothed. And in the same way, when we realise our lack of righteousness, when we realise that in the words of Isaiah 64, that all our righteous acts are as filthy rags, then we realise our desperate need to be righteousness. We thought we were clothed in righteousness. We thought we could point to God and say, look at my lovely clothes. Look at how many times I've gone to church. Look at how many times I've taken communion. And, And then we see their filthy rags in God's sight and we want to be covered. And once we realise that we don't have any righteousness of our own, we hunger and thirst for it. As someone once put it, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Let me tell you about a boy called John Williamson. He died in Dumfries, aged 16 in 1826. An account of his life was published by William Symington, who was minister of this congregation at the time. About a year and a half before he died, John Williamson was hit by a cricket ball. The details aren't clear, but despite the efforts of doctors and surgeons in Dumfries and in Edinburgh, he got worse and worse, and it became clear he wasn't going to recover. And yet during the 18 months between his injury and his death, Williamson was converted. He was saved. He became a Christian. It came about when he was sent to Moffat for six weeks. Uh, One night uh, there, uh, he heard his landlady praying for him during family worship, and it led to his conversion. Uh, That book that was published about his life contains some of his meditations on Scripture written in his final weeks when he couldn't leave his bed. And here's how he sums up this verse. It's a longer quote that I've put it on the back of the service sheet. And this is what he writes as a 16-year-old. He says, All God's people who, are, who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are continually hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They see that they have not, neither can have of themselves righteousness. They perceive that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's a quote from scripture. They, uh, they perceive that their very best works are mixed with sin. That they are always backward to do what is good and prone to do what is evil. And therefore they see that all their righteousness is as filthy rags before God. 
They therefore hunger and thirst after a more perfect righteousness, even the righteousness of the blessed Jesus, which is imputed to them by faith. He got it. And that's what's on offer to you today. Just as Pharaoh told the starving Egyptians to go to Joseph to get grain, so the Father tells us to go to Jesus to get righteousness. Without his righteousness, you will be lost forever. But the moment you are covered in his righteousness, you are saved for all eternity. And if you were to believe in him right now, you could be confident right now that if you died right now, you would go to heaven right now because you would have all the righteousness you would ever need to get in there. How righteous do you have to be to get into heaven? You have to be as righteous as Jesus was. It's not a description of any of us in and of ourselves. It's nothing we could ever hope to achieve. No no saint on earth could ever merit that amount of righteousness. But Jesus, Jesus merited it. Jesus earned it and he gives it to us as a free gift. And so even though in ourselves we are still sinners, in terms of our status before God, we are as righteous before God as his own son if our faith is in him. Who would dare dream this up? But it's what the Bible teaches from beginning to end. So do you know that hunger and thirst for righteousness? Have you felt that desperate need to be covered? Because if you are hungering and thirsting for this righteousness, maybe even if today has awakened a desire in you for that, well surely that is a good sign. Surely it is perhaps even a sign of new birth. What's the first thing a baby does when it's born? It feeds. Uh, What did Jesus say to the parents of that little girl that he raised from the dead? Uh, They were all being amazed. He said, give her something to eat. When she was dead, she didn't need to eat. But now she was raised, she did. Hunger is a sign of life. We hear people complaining that they don't have good health or that they don't have money or that they don't have all the things that they'd hoped they would have. But to see our desperate need of righteousness comes only through God's grace. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are already blessed because God has awakened that desire and the promise is that they will be satisfied. Activism can't hunger, can't satisfy our hunger for righteousness. Living a good life can't satisfy our hunger for righteousness. Only Jesus can. And his righteousness is on offer to all. He promises not to cast out anyone who comes to him, no matter how young or how old. But you must come to him. There's no other way to be clothed. There's no other way to be righteous enough to get into heaven. Jesus tells a parable about a man kicked out of a wedding because he wasn't wearing a wedding garment. What's that meant to teach us? Is it meant to teach us what's appropriate to wear to a wedding? Is it meant to teach us what's appropriate to wear to church? Well, surely not. Surely it's telling us that we won't get into heaven unless we're covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The wedding garment that he provides for us. 
And we don't get that righteousness. We don't get that wedding garment by coming to church or by being associated with Christians, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. So, our need of righteousness, have you realized yours? Jesus' provision of righteousness, are are you covered by it? Thirdly and finally, our pursuit of righteousness. Our pursuit of righteousness. Does the hunger and thirst for righteousness disappear once we're saved? Well, our desperate need to be made right with God is met. Rosaria Butterfield said, in all her days of activism, she wasn't able to sleep at night. But when she became a Christian, she was able to sleep at night. But the true Christian is still someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Jesus died not simply that we would be saved and go to heaven one day, but that we would live to righteousness here on earth. And the the worry from some is that if are getting to heaven, if it's all based on what Jesus do, if if it's 100% what he does and there's 0% of what we do, well then we can just go and live however we want. But, but that's not what the Bible says. It's not what those who are born again will do. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. All your sins are paid for. And so go out and die to sin and live to righteousness. Paul calls Timothy to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What does it mean to pursue righteousness? It means ultimately to seek to become more like Jesus you know, righteousness, it's not some, some nebulous thing or, or even just adherence to, to, a, to a, an arbitrary set of, set of laws or rules. It is to become more like Jesus. God's laws, after all, they stem from his character. Uh, if we want to know, to know what righteousness is, we look at Jesus are becoming more like Jesus. It's a process which will only be completed when we see his face. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. One day we will be like him, and we are grieved now because we are very unlike him. But each day... We are, by his grace, becoming more like him. That's something we're to be striving after more and more. John goes on, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And this is vital. It's such a vital distinction as well. We're not saved by pursuing righteousness. But if we don't pursue righteousness, it shows that we're not saved. We're not saved by pursuing righteousness. But if we don't pursue righteousness, it shows that we're not saved. To quote from the Apostle John again, 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. But the flip side is also true. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so let me ask you, do you hunger and thirst to become more like Jesus? 
Is that clear in your life from how you spend your time? In how you spend your Lord's days even? That this is your greatest desire? Could it really be described as a hungering and a thirsting? It's possible to have a thirst for knowledge or a hunger for sermons, but not for God. It's possible to have a thirst for religious controversy, but not for growing more like Jesus. Thomas Watson, who's known as the easiest to read Puritan, he says that it's a sign that men have no spiritual hunger when they are more for disputes in religion than practice. He says that if all people want to talk about is tiny distinctions, then it's picking at bones and not feeding on the meat. So how's your appetite? When it comes to our physical health, lack of appetite is a cause for concern. And it's the same with our spiritual health. Are you feeding on junk food, TV, movies, online videos, social media, to the extent that you have very little appetite for the word of God? Nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, but are you feeding on them to the extent that you have little appetite for the word of God? Because this is the means by which, as Peter puts it, we are to grow up into salvation. Now, it's not automatic. It would be possible to read your Bible every day and not grow as a Christian. But without the word, you can't hope to grow. So do you have any hunger at all to learn more about God and his word because to have no hunger is a sign of death and the hunger we need is not just a hunger to know more but to see Jesus that we would become more like him look to Jesus look at the the glimpses and pictures we get of him previewed in the old testament look at him pictured in the gospels see his humiliation in coming to earth a little lower than the angels see his perfect obedience to god's law watch his, watch him as he interacts with people his kindness his compassion look at his patience with his friends as well as his enemies this is the pattern that the Holy Spirit desires to mould us into more and more. This is the life we were created to live. And so brothers and sisters, hunger and thirst to become more like Jesus. Pursue that through the opportunities that he gives you. Learning from his word in the context of life in community with his people. Do that and you will be satisfied. Though the sort of satisfaction that always leaves you with a taste for more. So, we've seen today our need of righteousness. Have you realised yours? Jesus' provision of righteousness. Are you covered by it? And our per- pursuit of righteousness. Is that your goal? Or are you chasing after other things? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Amen. Well, we sing in closing from uh, Psalm 107, uh, a psalm which speaks about hungering and thirsting. Uh, Psalm 107, page 264. Psalm 107, page 264, the, the opening six verses. 
In verse 1, how are God's people described? Uh, They're his redeemed, those he has set free from slavery, not those who have earned their way into his favour. In verse 3, we once hungered and thirsted. In trouble, we to the Lord cried. And what did he do? Well, he saved us. Uh, Verse 6, it fills it out. For he, the soul that thirsty is, does fully satisfy with what is good the hungry soul. He fills abundantly. A description of the Christian life on earth and ultimately in heaven itself. Psalm 107, 1-6, we stand and sing praise. <laughs> 